0: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ahmed Ahmed about his new book, The Fatigue of the Sharia, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. In the book, The Fatigue of the Sharia, Ahmed Ahmed explores a centuries-old debate about the permanence or impermanence of God's law and guidance the lives of Muslims. Could God's guidance simply cease to be accessible at some point? Has such a fatigue already taken place? If so, how could one know for sure? What kinds of Muslims and non-Muslims have contributed to this debate? Ahmed ambitiously tackles these questions and many more in his meticulously researched and provocative monograph. In order to interrogate his topic, he surveys the many camps of the debate and also defines and problematizes key words, such as sharia, ijtihad, and Medheb. Although the text relies on a familiarity with the Islamic legal tradition, Ahmed's style of writing, which constantly asks readers to reflect on key questions, allows even the uninitiated to benefit from and reflect on what it could mean for God's guidance to fatigue. As a result of recounting competing angles of the debate, Ahmed leaves the reader with enduring questions rather than simple answers regarding how or if the sharia will indeed come to an end. If the legal schools, for example, arose at different times and in different contexts, why would they all meet a common future? Indeed, as political struggles in the Middle East, North Africa, and the greater Muslim world continue, Ahmed's timely book will likely not only interest Islamic studies scholars and legal historians, but also journalists, policymakers, and political scientists. Good morning, Ahmed. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. I was wondering if you could start off by telling us about your academic background and how you got interested in the topic of your book, The Fatigue of the Sharia.
1: Well, I I started to be interested in what we call Islamic studies here when I was 14. Uh, My parents moved temporarily to Yemen, and I stayed there uh, for three years. And I was struck uh, in that age, and at that time also, that was the mid-80s, between 1985 and 88 is is when I stayed there. Um, uh, I was struck by the... uh, the, the fact of the existence of the uh, Zaidi school, uh, which is a school of Shia uh, uh, religious practice and beliefs that is not talked about a lot. Um, uh, and, and to me, of course, it was unknown before that visit. was just a, a name. Um, uh, and during these three years, uh, something happened. I, was, I would be during the year... Uh, the academic year with my parents in Yemen and then we'll be back in Egypt in the summer. So I went back and forth between the scholars uh, of Yemen and the scholars of Egypt with essentially the same question. How could we look at the religion uh, very differently? How could people understand certain events differently? How could the religious practices be different? Questions were not exactly formed in that way but that's my best Uh, way of articulating it in today's uh, language or the way we look at things now. Um, And then at age 17, when I I went back to Egypt, uh, I was alone, actually, my freshman year in college. I decided to attend a College of Arabic and Islamic Studies at Cairo University, and my parents and the rest of my family stayed in Egypt. And I think I was, uh, looking back, of course, now, uh, I was part of a group, a small group uh, of people who were not expected to do Arabic and Islamic studies, because, uh, you know, if you came from the middle class that I came from and uh, got the, the the grades to attend engineering or medical school, that's what you did. And uh, But I wasn't alone, I, it wasn't a big group of people, but I realized there uh, there was a sense of a sort of a renaissance in uh, interest in religious studies and Islamic studies at the time. Um, then I finished uh, the college and uh, the system there allowed me to receive a, an appointment as a lecturer at the university. Something of a lecturer, it's hard to translate. And uh, that allowed me to focus on my studies I was able then to actually enroll in another uh, undergraduate program to study Egyptian law and started to work on my master's, which was about uh, courts and uh, the difference between medieval courts, which didn't have any structure like the appellate system that we have uh, today, and, and the, and the uh, way, say, modern Egyptian law looks at courts and the hierarchy is a very basic thing. But I was really interested more or less in the epistemic question, the question of, uh, you know, one of the arguments that were made against establishing a hierarchy for the courts in medieval Islam was that if the judge decides in a certain matter, and we know it's a matter of disagreement, how could we simply allow another judge to overrule that judge uh, the the first judge and say that he was for all practical purposes wrong, uh, so I was fascinated by this argument, and I, but but I got interested in modern Egyptian law too, um, uh, and then in ninety seven, uh, uh, kind of a long story to tell, but at the end I decided to uh, leave the leave Egypt and move to the United States. Uh, I was in. Uh, clear in the beginning that I was going to stay or that I was going to keep my field. you know. So one decision was to go back to Egypt and do the same thing. One decision was to go back and do something else. Uh, one possibility is to stay and do the same thing or do something else. After some hesitation, I uh, started a doctoral program in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and ended up doing my PhD here. Uh, and I think what happened in the United States uh, briefly was that my interests uh, simply expanded without any limits. It was hard for me at a certain point to know what my field of study was. I just got interested in everything from legal philosophy, modern American law at some point I got interested in uh, in, uh, early modern European political thinking and um, that took me also to Roman political thinking, ancient European political thinking. Um, so this is this is how um, uh, until I finished my studies, my finished my doctorate, how I evolved. Um, and, uh, and that book, The Fatigue of the Sharia, actually took me back to a very early stage in my interest in my field, as I indicated in the preface.
0: Well, great. Oh. Um, I'm sure we'll see how you're early interests are reflected in the book as you tell us more about it so could you could you start by saying something about this term sharia which of course is used and used and misused in all sorts of different contexts ranging from academia to fox news and and the white house what do you what do you mean when you're using this term
1: well i you could you could think of my uh little book there as a, as a, an attempt to show that this definition is hard, uh, because even scholars right. could disagree right. about the presence of the Sharia, what it means. I mean, uh, if you start from uh, the way both scholars and uh, popular uses uh, of the term uh, make it to be, it, it, it could mean a legal science, a way of doing law, and law here is more than the more than than the modern secular law so it governs not only markets and marriages and crime and uh, to an extent uh, political arrangements but it also governs rituals and it governs uh, religious practices relationship between the individual and and god so the legal science that allows you to participate in the discussion about what the law should be and why is uh, the sharia science. Right. So it's not one one genre only, multiple genres, but if we think of the sharia as a legal science, then it would be all these, the the tools that allow you to engage in this conversation. Or another fancy term for it is discourse, religious discourse or legal religio-legal discourse. Uh, but you could also see that people say sharia and mean the whole gamut of social structures, political structures, uh, economic structures, endowments and independent uh, resources for scholarship that existed only essentially in the Middle Ages To in, in any perfect way, it's an assumption, of course, we could, we could dispute that, and I definitely uh, have interest in disputing that. Uh, so then the Sharia would be and and the Sharia also would include then the cultural practices that go there. so the distinction between the Sharia as law and the Sharia as anthropology or a matter for anthropology then is blurred in this uh, understanding and the Sharia essentially is a worldview attended by uh, this uh, comprehensive infrastructure that spans uh, the political arrangements and social expectations and uh, even personal sensitivities and so on. Um, and I, I, I like, of course, the comprehensive understanding of it. I just think that it's not consistently useful. So, for example, when you look at that term Futur al Sharia in the medieval debate that I talked about, Sharia really attends essentially to the legal science, so what we call, what I call the legal science, the way to engage meaningfully and fruitfully in answering practical questions by lay people or people who don't know how to do the research for themselves. And you can give them something that's authoritative, that's meaningful, that's consistent. Uh, So so Sharia is not going to even mean the same thing in the old standard, in the medieval texts.
0: Right. And I think in, in your book, it's clear how you use it in so many different ways so that you you emphasize that it's absolutely not a a simple term. So now we have this other term that people are going to wonder about, fatigue. So could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the fatigue of the Sharia and who are some of the main players that contributed to this debate across the century?
1: Yeah, so that's another uh, uh, issue also. The fatigue uh the Sharia comes out of a discussion that was started by Abu al al as a scholar from Persia who lived more than 900 years ago. He's the teacher of the more famous Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. And Juwaini debates a scholar who lived 150 years or so before him, uh, a guy named uh, Abu al-Qasim al-Ka'bi. Al-Ka'bi belongs uh, in the Baghdad Matazili uh, school, and he's reported here by Juwaini to have said the following. The Sharia will not fatigue, will not experience fatigue. What that means is that uh, because God, uh, uh, according to our human reason, God is bound to do what's best. Okay, So the way we conceptualize God, we can't conceptualize God without thinking that he does that which is best. So if God reveals himself to prophets and messengers... He should not allow that revelation or that knowledge or that guidance that results from the revelation to fade away. There's no point in that. It's not the best. Um, so now, Kabi is reported to have said that Kabi actually is not attested uh, by a lot of writing. He's mostly you know, written about by, well, actually, unfortunately, people who didn't agree with him, didn't like him, like joining. Uh, and Ka'vi, he represents the Mautazili school of law. He should really represent only one branch of it. But Juwaini takes him to be a representative of a view that says that Sharia shouldn't fade away. It's not expected to fade away. Juwaini says, no, wrong. Wrong on the foundation and wrong on the conclusion. First, there's no such a thing as human reason, uh, human reason deciding what God is bound to do. And we don't know what is best, that thing that's called what's best is uh, pretty vague, and nobody is going to figure that out. So the foundation is wrong, but also the conclusion. Uh, even if we say that God has to do what's best, it doesn't follow from that, that uh, we shouldn't lose uh, this knowledge of the revelation. In fact, it might be a good thing, because that would allow us to think on our own. It's an argumentative stance, uh, but what happened was the Joani started a discussion that didn't die. For the subsequent 700 years at least, uh, until the first half of the 19th century, people are having this discussion as an interesting discussion. One thing, though, that separates the early centuries of this debate from the later centuries is that the Ash'ari view that Juwaini elaborated, which says that the Sharia could experience fatigue. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that, and he defines that as the death of scholars, the end of the, that religious legal science. Uh, he says that uh, he makes that argument against the Matezilis and it's made against the Matezilis in the first few centuries and in later centuries you find that the Ash'aris say we believe in this against the Hanbalis the Matezilis and the Hanbalis have the same conclusion according to the Ash'aris but uh, when you investigate that of course you find that they uh, have very different reasons for the conclusion so again the debate looks like this the Matezilis and Hanbalis on the one hand say that the Sharia could never experience fatigue, and they don't exactly define that the same way that the Ash'aris define it, that, the, that it is the end of scholars, uh, or the end of Ijtihad. Uh, but the Ash'aris on the one hand, by, by, on the other hand, by themselves, going against the Matadzid and against Hanbalis, and against all their arguments, their multiple arguments uh, for that.
0: So you mentioned these different groups, the Ash'aris and the Hanbalis and Marthas—these In your book, you also mentioned these three different phases of the debate that have developed over time. Could you say something about these phases and how they're unique and how they overlap and how these three groups contributed?
1: Right. So the, the, what I'm talking about now is, is a medieval debate and I will say with some license would we'll call this a, a first phase of the debate there is no reason for me to think that unless, uh, or I, I didn't really think that until I started to think that the more recent discussions uh, about the death of the Sharia as an event of the past uh, so well, Halek of Columbia University, a major scholar somebody who impresses me and I really don't <laughs> disagree a lot with his uh, arguments but uh, there are some different uh uh, ways I look at this. Uh, but in any case, his argument was that the Sharia could be said to have died. And, and um, he's not alone. And actually, uh, the problem I find with this stance isn't exactly his argument only, but the way people kind of celebrate that and take it to mean something else. Uh, but in any case, so the what, what we might refer to as the third phase of the debate is the current debate about the disappearance of the Sharia or the death of the Sharia as an event of the past. Now, what that looks like is essentially the same uh, thing that we talked about earlier when we said that the Sharia would be a worldview with uh, an infrastructure. Well, Halak traces the history of this infrastructure in the last 300 years and shows that it got destroyed completely. That includes the social uh, network of support, the economic support, uh, and even the epistemic part. So that's why I find some resonance of the medieval debate, even though he didn't really make uh, that connection uh, necessarily. But, but one of the things that he would want to argue is that that uh, relationship between somebody who studies the Sharia today and the information and the reasoning and the arguments is very different from the relationship that existed between a scholar of the Sharia 500 years ago and his materials. Uh, so, and, and he would say that even if the somebody can claim today that they understand the medieval discourses, they still can't say that this is the same thing, because partly because uh, the 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 community that supported the Sharia for centuries doesn't exist anymore. So what is allowed to exist now is something he he calls the intexted Sharia, that would be something for the classrooms or something for the room where the mufti delivers answers, theoretical answers, which the questioner might or might not be able to apply. So uh, to simplify this a little bit, it's too complicated. The modern debate, the more recent debate, what I call the third phase or the third type of debate about about the sharia doesn't look uh, at the sharia the same way as the medieval debate because uh, the medieval debate (laughs) looks like uh, is interested in the future of the sharia. And the current debate looks at the Sharia almost as something of the past. Maybe the Sharia is on its way to becoming something like Roman law, something we could understand and analyze only by looking at ideas in context. Now, if there is a third phase and there is a first phase, or there is a modern debate about the past uh, death of the Sharia, and the evil debate looks at the future of the Sharia, uh, I thought we could also, to complete the historical continuum, uh... Look at the debates in the 19th century and limited a little bit now to a place like Egypt where a discussion was about the new legal knowledge and then new legal practices and cultural practices that attended uh, the presence of modernity in Egypt. The founding of new law schools and the new practices in the market and the family and so on that in, in Halak's story destroyed the Sharia gradually. Uh, the second phase of the debate would be a discussion about the details of the Sharia. What is the sharia, what, what does the Sharia say in this? Uh, can we still define usury the same way? Is uh, uh, the new system of insurance acceptable or not? Uh, can the family, which consists of a man and a woman who work, be structured the same way? Can inheritance systems from the Middle Ages be uh, accepted or kept? Can corporal punishments continue to be the standard as opposed to confining somebody's freedom or taking their money away, which is the more civilized way of of punishing criminals. Uh, All these things uh, are attested also in the literature, and uh, it's funny, there are two different kinds of legal elites that are participating in this, some with very little interest in medieval jurisprudence, but they have a sense uh, of the new world that they're living in. So that's how the idea of the three phases uh, came about, but I'm not wedded to it. I just, I kind of just liked it. I thought, of course, it's a very irresponsible exercise as far as uh, the historians' uh, work. Historians are always attached to, I mean, I think too much, really. They think of ideas as nothing but the outcome of their context, and then they tear the ideas apart, and then nothing really remains of them. It's all context. And I always joke, you may have heard that joke from me if you... Remember that some people think that an idea in a book uh, has a stronger connection with the marital status of the author and its relationship to the next idea and the next sentence. Uh So it's right. It's all about because the Sharia is history to them, just like any other uh, system that existed in the past, which means that I can't really do what I'm doing here in this book. I can't simply put together three uh, different systems uh, that that gave us three different debates. I acknowledge that it's not that I don't understand it, but you know I just find that history of ideas with with the context only uh, being allowed to be talked about just boring.
0: Right, and I think one of the um, useful thing, one of the many useful things you do in the book is continually problematize the question of temporality in terms of was the Sharia dead, or will it it die, and how do we know? And you have this quote where you say, the inquiry into the health or frailty of the Sharia at a given moment can be a major trap. And so would you be be able to elaborate on that a little bit in light of this issue of temporality?
1: Right, so this is towards the end, the very end actually, of the book, right before the conclusion. Um, uh, It was easy to locate it because you... You uh, give me something memorable. Uh, you know, the book is now two years old, so I really don't remember most of what I said there except the general um, the big lines. But but clearly uh, in that section, the search for a trap, I want to say that I'm not immune to the trap. Uh, if I uh, uh, misunderstood somebody's argument and accused them of, of not attending to the to the big picture. um, I want to apologize for that. But I also want to say that uh, they're doing something dangerous when they look at the history of ideas and want to make a decision about where these ideas are today. Right. Because it's not less uh, theological to say that an old system died than to say that it is alive because of religion. You know what I mean? So the Hanbalis argument, I'll take you back to the medieval debate for a second. The Hanbalis said that the Sharia could never die because God said so, essentially. And God said it will not die, and his uh, being who he is, God the just, the compassionate, the uh, caretaker, the one who cares for us very much, can't just leave us without guidance. It's not less religious to say that a system died by looking at history as if this were a, ne- a neutral thing because it, you essentially live in the same trap It's we, di- we didn't live in the history, we don't know what happened and uh, the best we can do is a limited induction so I look at this the following way, w- w- how do I get out of the trap? I say that I think we can't talk about the death of the life of the Sharia because uh, I see Something that all humans seem to share. Two things. One is a personal tendency to want to look for meaning, including looking for meaning in action. Whether the action is prayers, or the way they conduct their business, or the way they go about their families, or whatever. This is the practical aspect of the sharia from an individual point of view. And the other part that also persists in human uh, existence is the social impulse. Uh, which is really the foundation of the Sharia for somebody like well, halaq The life of everyday, which an individual can't impose it on the society. Cannot, right? An individual cannot impose that on the society. So it takes participation, and it takes give and take. This is there in all human societies, and the Islamic flavor of it is still there too. And it exists in even the more the most secular uh, Muslim societies today. This is really what the Sharia could mean today or should mean today. If we insist on the historical interpretation, we're not going to get anywhere, and we will fall into this trap no matter how careful we are. So I say after that sentence, how much should one know about the Muslim world with all its languages and cultures, legal and political institutions, and even private and social life and its cities, villages, and so on, before being willing uh, to give the vitality of the Sharia a great, because what we're doing also is like a teacher saying the Sharia now gets a C minus or gets a, a a B or something like that because it looked the 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 Sharia that got an A or an A plus in the old books are not is not reflected today, you know what I mean? So so that's what I mean by the trap. And I and again I I I, I don't plan to make this a polemic, but I. I want to say that um, to the extent that this is a difficult exercise, I'd like to uh, decline being part of it.
0: And and to follow up on that, one of the things you talk about also is the tendency to want to see the health of the Sharia in relationship to how much a a government might be to incorporate it into state law and things like that so could you say something about the relationship between the Sharia and the government both in the pre-modern and modern world
1: right this is this is a hard part uh, and I tried to tackle it also again from the point of general principles I found also the same Joini to be my my friend in this journey and in chapter 8 I have this long uh, quote from him a translation uh, that explains how he, he looks at the relationship between uh, government and the sharia. In the ideal world, we all agree that the government, if it doesn't support the life of the community through what we call the sharia, so uh, whatever it is, the, the way of socializing, and, and even also individuals looking at themselves in the mirror. And, so, for example, the government or the, whoever is in charge of the society, could be private corporations, the the strongest people in the society could not be trying to undermine people's relationship to the sharia so if a worker wants a break for example to uh to do the prayer or at least a break to combine a couple of prayers to uh during the shift the the laws can't be such that uh, that they make that impossible something of the message of the first amendment of the american constitution right there has to be some protection for Religion. So in the ideal world, the government should not be fighting with the Sharia. Uh, now, whether we want to go as far as to say that the government has to actively participate in protecting the Sharia, putting the endowments and uh, for scholarship and supporting the scholars and appointing them as judges and all that, that's too much. So what Juwaini says, what I understand to be the correct understanding, we don't have to obsess about government. I mean, you will you'll always have... The, the kind of government that, uh, the, that your time or your context allows. I mean, the Egyptians had a different government a, a year ago, and now they have a government, and we don't know how long this will last. And in the past, even in, in the best of times, there were always critiques of government. Uh, Subki, for example, wrote a, uh, a whole critique of the whole society. He was not happy with anybody. Subki lived in the uh, 13th century, and he was, he was not happy with anything. Now, if we take his critique of government and administrative life and social life around him and all these memluks, the Turks who were moving around, didn't know the language and did all kinds of things that he considered uh, inappropriate. If we take that to say that the lack of a cooperative government with the Sharia means that the Sharia is dead, then we could say that the Sharia is dead, has been dead all the time. There were always critiques, since the Prophet Muhammad's death, there were always critiques of the current government. So what Joanne is saying, what I think I understand from, from him, is that we shouldn't obsess about government. Government can't be the, a prerequisite for uh, the life of anything. And, and there are always fashions in government. And there will, you'll have a supportive person, uh, or somebody who's neutral and then that would be followed by somebody who's actively against you. And you, and, and the discussion can't simply be about the room uh, that the government allows for the flourishing of a religion or a uh, religious law uh, to whatever, you know, to, to any extent.
0: So what about, you also, you've mentioned a little about Egypt and that's your background as well and you spend a little bit of time making references to the Egyptian revolution. And you also say how people falsely want to say that it's about whether or not Sharia can be incorporated into government or not. So could you say something about how you've thought about and followed the Egyptian revolution as you wrote and since you wrote the book and how your thoughts might have developed?
1: Sure. So the events, of course, were uh, the events of the initial uprising in december of twenty i mean it was actually january twenty eleven and february twenty eleven also um were at the end the the book was already in the press at the time and i uh couldn't say much i mean i said in the beginning in a preface that um uh, If if I want, you know, everybody was in the business of prediction and so on. And at the time, it was before the Muslim Brothers' government was elected. I thought, if anything, this is a moment of uh, the society is exposed before itself. And when this happens, there will be an adjustment, something like a a punctuation of uh, or a punctuated equilibrium. If you know that term from evolutionary biology, the society is evolving, but. There was a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of secrets and things people didn't know about themselves. And when, when, when the revolution happened, uh, I think that would allow people to go back. And and uh, you can't really expect the government to support that serafi sharia or that isolated kind of thinking about the religion and the history. So if you want to predict anything, you predict a going uh, in the different in a different direction going away from the old religious practices and trying to find something more meaningful something more uh, capable of surviving because it, it is appropriate for the contemporary uh, world but uh, but I, but I uh, you know I put as many caveats on this prediction because I hate predictions and you know you can never be right in your prediction even when it happens there's always a tinge of met- metaphor that is required to make sense of what you said earlier, because nobody sees the future. So I'm trying to understand the present. And, uh, and since then, of course, the last three years have proven that nobody knows enough about this society to, to be able to, to guess where it is now, let alone where it is going. Uh, I have a strong hunch, of course, that this is an important moment, that this upheaval is different, say from earlier upheavals in 1882 or in, 1919, 1950s. At this time, it's a popular uh, breaking loose of things, and uh, I like it. You know, I, I like the uh, the destructive act there, and I'm hoping that some kind of constructive act uh, will follow. Although I recognize it can't be quick.
0: So, going back to. Your earlier comments about hierarchy and the law, you have another quote in your book where you reference Khadab al-Fadl's rebellion and violence in Islamic law, where you say, you ask the question, is a Muslim government a source of support for jurists, or is it a rival? And you mentioned that it's a hard question to answer, but could you tell us a little about why that's a hard question to answer?
1: So I, I vaguely remember where that is, and I think this is a, a basic point, because and it's part of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, you, historically, what Chelobfod shows is, is that it went in different directions. So it's not that we don't know, and we we just have caveats because we don't know what happened. We know that it went in in both directions. Sometimes the scholars were against the government, were very tortured essentially by what the government did, and uh, occasionally the same generation of scholars was very happy with what the government did. So that's just the nature. Uh, of also of scholarship that there are different camps, which means that you can't expect the government to either. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to say that the government will be for or against the Sharia, right? Because the Sharia also is different camps. So I like that, and I use it here uh, again. If I remember where your uh, your where the quote is, is where where I say that um, this modern condition is kind of old to the extent that. Uh, the scholars can be on the wrong side of government or with it. Um, uh, And that simply just relieves me of the obsession about how modern governments and secular Muslim countries look at religiously educated people or people who received an alternative religious education which became available in the last hundred years or so. uh, or, Or even people who are simply just independent, thinking of creating a new uh, science for religion and philosophy for the future. So um, that's what I mean. And of course, Khaled al-Fadl also is mentioned again in that book uh, in a more important and fundamental way because it was really uh, Khaled's uh, constant provocation and questions about where we are now in our relationship to the Sharia, and the memory of the Sharia. Uh, that provoked me to go back to that text, as I mentioned in the uh, preface, of going back to uh, a text I read by uh, Zarkashi, a scholar from the 14th century, in his book, Al-Bahra al Bahru Mahit, where he talks about uh, Futur sharia which led me to go back to Juwaini, the, the, the person I mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And another important concept, and difficult to define term that you talk about a bit is Ijtihad and Mujtahid, the people that do Ijtihad. So could you tell us about how Ijtihad relates to your projects and whether or not the death of the Sharia is the same thing as the death of Ijtihad and if these are similar or different?
1: Right. So Ijtihad, as I say in in Chapter 3, is that term that just got everybody exhausted because It is used uh, in a relaxed way by different people. And uh, it it also bothered uh, people like Max Weber, who wanted to understand what Islamic law was like. He came up with this notion of uh, Qadi justice, uh, which is a notion also that survived in Orientalist scholarship, that Islamic law is essentially about intuition, that there is no science there, there is no systematic thinking there. By, that's what I mean by science here. And that uh, b- because the judge could uh, surprise you all the time, and the mufti also, the mufti is the religious counsel who offers you uh, the uh, the advice that's non-binding, so it's not in a, in a case of law or in a court, uh, but as a religious piece of advice. And for Max Weber, he couldn't understand the logic. And this is simply you know, a uh, piece of evidence or uh, indicative of the fact that he didn't study this very well. I mean, I think it's true of any legal system. I, I find it hard to believe that any seasoned scholar of American law or Egyptian law, the two systems I came close to, to an extent, would say that that, that at the end of the day, the good argument is something that would be appreciated by those who have developed a degree of sensitivity to the nature of the reasoning and the evolution of the legal system, which means still that it will be fuzzy, or for some outsiders, it would just sound like Qadi justice, right? It would sound too intuitive and less uh, capable of following the hard science method, where you can say that there is some measure of predictability I'm not saying that there is no predictability of the law. Of course, there are schools of law, and one of the conclusions I made in my uh, research uh, when I was working on my master's thesis was that, of course, you can repeal a court decision if it is done by a scholar who goes against the consensus of scholars or who goes against the consensus or the better interpretation in his school of law. So there are ways also to sort of arbitrarily decide that somebody's wrong. Uh, but, at, but at the end of the day, ijtihad allows you to break with the norms. So if you're really, if you are a mujtahid, there could be a moment where you could be in the minority and you could be against the majority and you would be right and time will prove that you're right. So with this difficulty in mind, look now at what we might call ijtihad theory. How could the standard for the fatigue of the sharia be? the death of scholars, when that art, the scholars being the mujtahids, the people who perform mujtahid, when that art itself is very hard to define. You understand the dilemma? So if I say, I could wake up one morning and say, there are no scholars anymore, the mujtahids are not around, but I can't really tell you what that thing is. Uh, So this is the basic difficulty. And I... uh, I think it's it's again it's important. To, it takes us back to the basic principles of what we understand, what we're talking about to be, what the Sharia is, and which the head is. It's not it's not a natural science. It's not, and even natural sciences, you know, also go through these paradigm shifts, as as you all know, right? We we lived by Newton's physics for a long time, and then all of a sudden we think that time. Uh, is contingent on movement and and the individuals moving and the speed and so on. It didn't it didn't seem to make sense. For example, in 1905, when Einstein wrote these uh, famous papers.
0: And and, and so, it had of course has to do, like you're saying, what what sources you take seriously and what types of consensus you're looking at. And so, one of the things, one of the discussions you have that I think helps complicate that issue is you talk about allegiance to the math hebs, the legal schools versus another way of approaching the tradition which you call ultra foundationalism so could you make a distinction between these two terms and how they they bear on your research topic
1: sure right so this is where we are now some people look at the past reasoning and the sophisticated medieval jurisprudence and say we can't break away from that. That will be a death sentence to our activities and to our connection with that tradition. But of course there was an attempt to say that what, what happened in the medhavs of the schools that dominated medieval legal reasoning was a mistake, that they forgot what they were trying to do. The medhavs were there to allow us to understand the revelation. And when we forgot that and when our relationship with the revelation became weaker, we generated many, many scholars who could not even explain why the preponderant view or the standard view in their school of law is binding religiously or that it has to do with the Qur'anic revelation or what the Prophet said. So this ultra-foundationist um, movement, and mm-hmm. going back to, uh, I mean, you could trace it back, of course, to your guy, 14th century uh, Syrian scholar, Ibn Taymiyyah, and uh, in the modern version to Shokani and his teacher, uh, San'ani, from the 18th and early 19th centuries. And, and in the Shokani version, it's, it's pretty obvious that uh, he understands that, he gets that lesson. He says, one of the reasons Ibn Taymiyyah is great is because he could see why the madhhabs are, I mean, he understands what the madhhabs are doing, how they're different, and, and how they're also similar, but also can detect the mistake what we're trying to do, guys, here is figure out what the revelation was about, not create our own discourse and uh, sort of our own uh, academic chairs and have our own discussions and then forget what uh, what this is about. So that's what I mean by the foundation and the ultra-foundationalists. And as usual, I, I'm not wedded to any of the terms. That, I'm, I'm pretty relaxed about terms because I, I really hate the the fact that discussions sometimes turn on terms, and then it, you know, people can take twenty years and then figure out that they're using the term differently. So it's better uh, for for people to talk about the meaning of the term as opposed to the term itself. But this is how uh, I I look at this um, a part of the discussion: whether you're perpetuating an academic exercise, which is the MetHab, or whether you're going back to the basic message of the revelation. And I want to say that uh, I mentioned uh, Sheikh al-Mutri, a uh, scholar who comes from the madhhab background, who died in 1935, who uh, was influenced by this discussion and couldn't do anything but acknowledge that, yes, what we're trying to do with the madhhab is figuring out what the what the revelation was about. And it, and it would be very bad for anybody to assume that the religion is the madhhab or is the academic scholarship rather than the initial message which is supposed to be available to everybody.
0: So going going back to Sheikh Al-Muhtari, who you mentioned, you talk about, and you, you quote him a bit in terms of how he argues that lay access to the Quran and Sunnah can be easier than access to this difficult or obtuse juristic language. And so what's the relationship between the death of the Sharia and maybe the death of like madhab thinking? Were the scholars that you're looking at and anticipating the end of madhabs and the end of Sharia were these the same thing?
1: Right. So this is exactly the point. Right. So to elaborate on this um, what is the relationship? Well, it, there is a relationship, but, but they shouldn't match completely. The mazhab is one way of approaching the revolution. And it served very well, maybe a millennium, but it can't really continue. Yeah, even though, of course, when Shokani started saying that 200 years ago, people were, uh, what is this idiot? I mean, is he really going to change a tradition like that? Even though people knew he was good, he was strong. But, uh, there were still people... Uh, who attacked him uh, as if maybe he fell b- basically victim to hubris or something like that. But the, uh, but the point now is different. In the 15th Islamic century or the 21st century, the current time, everybody, any reasonable person could recognize that you can't really go back to... Uh, the example that Moutouyeh mentions is an example in Inheritance. And it's even according to the Hanafi school of law, which is already esoteric because it's burdened by many doctrines within Hanafi law if you didn't know them, and you could be a good scholar from Shafi law who didn't understand that one, Uh, that 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 can't be really the, the foundation or the way forward. So for the Muslim community today, what they get out of this, what they should get out of this, is that even... The the scholars who continued to play the game, at least, who, who who didn't say that we have to all resort to Sufism, and I take that to be a surrendering of the, uh, uh, you know, surrendering to a modernity. When you say that the only way out is Sufism, and I know a lot of my teachers in Egypt say things like that, and I know also you have a lot of sympathy with Sufism, but I I, I take it that if anybody says the only way forward is Sufism. That means you're out of discussion. If you're not doing that, and if you're still in the game, you would be doing, let's, you would be saying this. Let's look at the details and the foundations at the same time and ask why this is the case. For example, the Maqasid al Shariah discussion, the way it was stated by Ibn Ashur in the 1940s, his famous book, Maqasid al Shariah, that now got, got, of course, uh, edited and republished many times. And became a standard book. The question of why this or that legal provision or religious provision is the way it is. Why? is basic. You're not going to get out of this now. He says historically, of course, usul al-fiqh, or the genre of legal theory, is more interested in how. How do we know the law? And then the question of why the law it is, is the way it is comes in the middle of that discussion. So now, why is very basic. Why anything? Why pray five times? Why uh, avoid usury? What is usury? Why marriage and divorce this way? Why child custody laws this way? Why uh, um, uh, men and women have different rights in the family? Why inheritance laws are the same way? And and this is the only way you can uh, take this discussion seriously. So does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, and on, on, on the note of why anything, I think one of the um, really helpful but also challenging aspects of your book is that you you ask a lot of questions, and I think it, it gets the reader thinking about things in ways that a lot of academic books do differently because it forces the reader to pause and say, oh, yeah, why why is this question important? And so in in light of that, Uh, approach that you take to writing this book, and also in light of your background, having studied Islamic studies from a very early age and showing your fluency with the tradition in all sorts of different ways in the text, what, what were some surprises that you found when you were doing your research? Were there any particular questions that you brought to the table that gave really surprising answers for you? So
1: during these three years when I was writing this book, um, well, as I said, I, I, I really, the project was taking me back and making me think about 20 years of, of relationship with the subject. Uh, it, I have to say, the journey at the end was very uh, enjoyable and pleasurable, but in the process, it was pretty painful because, uh, you know, I kept going back and I said, well, I, I was always interested in understanding more and it seemed like the more I understood something the less interested i, I became in, in that subject so it was it was a lot of pain uh, But the 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 clarity I think of the uh, of my position at the end was the real reward but I think now uh, I can't apologize for being so much in the minority in basic questions when I When I ask about the education of children, when I ask about what to tell um, your friends, people who really have no time for their religion, but they have a basic irritant or a question that irritates them. A woman, for example, is interested in can she cover her hair or should she cover her hair? Is she going to suffer after death because of not covering And in the past, maybe I used to say, well, you know, okay, I'm not going to offer the answer because, maybe because my own religiosity is kind of too low, is below the level that allows me the authority to give that answer. But in the process of thinking about the question of the fatigue of the Sharia, i well, you know, I could still refrain from giving answers because I don't think of myself as a religious authority or anything like that. I'm definitely more consumed by academic exercises and and the life of an academic in the American context, which is very different, of course, and is governed by fashions that come and go, and is really a few steps removed from from that uh, exercise of thinking about the religion as as something that affects people's lives. But I, if if I have to offer an answer. Uh, and that's the essence of the answer to my to your question. I don't think I'll apologize for it. I'll say, yeah, this this goes back to the foundation. And I, I don't think that you can take the medieval uh, standards fully uh, seriously or all the way because you're asking a basic question and because you're able to understand. I mean, assuming, of course, the questioner could understand and is interested in understanding why, at the end of the day, why cover, why not cover? So I think that's the discovery that I am not as uh, as afraid of uh, saying what I think and 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 finding a connection between what I think in the original world that I started uh, working within.
0: I, I think this question of authority is interesting that you you frame it like that. Also, and towards the end of the book, you talk about how there's different types of scholars who are contributing to this debate about the fatigue of the Sharia. And there's traditionally it's been jurists, but you mention also some non-jurists in the modern period, and also also non non-Muslims. I, I presume you mean you include wild halak in that. Category. So, could you say something about that? Is it significant that non-jurists or even non-Muslims are contributing to conversations about the fatigue of the Sharia?
1: Right. I mean, they have been contributing uh, in the last 200 years or so. This is part of the story that Halaq tells. They have influenced, the the people who have influenced the lives of Muslims most in the last 200 to 300 years have been non-Muslims. And the, even though the participation by the Muslim population, for example, in the story of in Egypt, for example, the second half of the 19th century, the founding of new law schools that are based on modern French law, uh, which for a while attracted a disproportionate uh, number of the population from non-Muslims. So, for example, Donald Reed shows that in the beginning, the law schools were attended by non-Muslims to an extent that was maybe three times their uh, percentage in the population but that evened out gradually of course and and Muslim societies became more secularized and a normal even uh, more religious intellectual would be more secular than the, uh, the sort of the, the ideal uh, understanding of a religious Muslim which means that the a non-Muslim for example like Wa well, al clearly connects uh, himself with his Muslim environment, environment he grew up in, Muslim and non-Muslim and Arab uh, community, uh, that that uh, you know sort of yeah creates a connection. So we don't want to make the mistake, of course, of assuming that in earlier centuries that was not the case. But in the, what is different about modernity is that non-Muslims have become so much part. Of the lives of Muslims, you don't have to be a minority like Muslims living in America as a minority to feel that influence, right? So let's establish that. What that means is that we're going to attend to the arguments now. We're not going to worry too much about the standard, for example, that the mujtahid has to be a Muslim. I mean, it's true that the mujtahid is, in in principle, is supposed to be a Muslim, Uh, and you're not expected to appoint a non-Muslim as a judge, to look into cases where uh, the adversaries, both of them are Muslim. Uh, But but what is maybe new and maybe exciting, maybe confusing to an extent in the modern era, is that uh, religious affiliation is not the main thing now to consider. What you want, if you have a relationship to your legacy as a Muslim, you want to just understand it, and you want to get as much Uh, out of uh, everybody, anybody who participated even in a colonial government that ruled over a Muslim population for a while and gradually made people think differently about their religion and their relationship to other religions, that's all relevant now. That's the extent of what I could say. Of course, what's uh, personal about this, which is (laughs) to what extent is the Muslim uh, different from a non-Muslim today? You, you know, so mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of Muslims who share more of their beliefs and practices with non-Muslims than they share with any Muslims, and and that's another complication. So we can't sit here and pass judgments on right. billions of people and what they're like or how they compare to one another.
0: Right. And so, um, mo- moving moving towards wrapping things up, because I know I've taken up a lot of your time already. Given the complexity of this book, are you able to incorporate parts of it into the courses you teach?
1: I have used it a couple of times, actually once uh, in an introduction to Islamic law, because I thought partly we spent a lot of time in the introduction talking about history, and students are not really interested in that, and they want to just ask about, well, so what? So what's going on now? And I tried to use it, and if I use it in the future, I'll try to be a little more merciful and not necessarily assign parts of it, but just uh, talk about the implications of some of the arguments. Because it's definitely, as some of the reviewers have seen already one review of the book, and it's clear that the reviewer struggled with it. And I, you know, I understand. it's a, It's an implicit critique, and it is something I can't Rebut or, or deny. I have a tendency when I write uh, to be absorbed in the ideas, and I feel like the audience comes <laughs> comes later. Uh, so, um, um, but sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely draw on it uh, in different ways. What the uh, current research direction is taking me is is actually back to Egyptian laws. It's much less now about the debates of the Sharia itself and about how modern Egyptian law evolved. Um, the national courts in Egypt were established in 1883 and in the last 130 years uh, a lot has happened in terms of these courts acquiring their identity. And I go back earlier than 1883, the law school uh, was uh, functional since the 1860s and and I'm interested in that story, but... Um, I can tell that this project is not going to take uh, just a few years. I mean, I've been actually very productive in the last nine years, almost on the clock. Every three years, I have something to say, and I feel like this one is not going to take just three years. It's also complicated by the fact that I'm more involved in administration now, and uh, you know, look into in the next two years, I will. Next year, I'll serve as the assistant director for the University of California, Washington, D.C. Center. And the big question before us, which is not limited to Middle Eastern studies or Islamic studies, is the relationship between what students study and, and the workplace and the job market, what they're expected to do. And uh, it's, it's a very involved question. I'm not the only one involved in this. Everybody pretty much is asking the same question now. Um, and, I, and, and that actually takes a lot of time, thinking about curriculum, thinking about the relationship between uh, when students are about to finish their work and they intern for a company or an entity, the relationship between the internship and what they study. This is really taking a lot of time. So the research is, is going to be only part of what I do in the next few years.
0: Well, great. You, you anticipated, of course, the final question, which is what are you currently working on? And you definitely answered that. So thank, thank you once again for sharing your time this morning, and it was really great to talk with you.
1: Thank you very much, Elliot, for allowing me to, to have this opportunity, and uh, uh, you'll be very interested in uh, uh, dealing with people's feedback. And let me know, of course, if I need to answer any question or clarify any point.
0: Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Ahmed Ahmed, professor of religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, about his wonderful book, The Fatigue of the Sharia, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. Thank you for listening.